Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ladies and gentlemen, record geeks, retired plate spinners, and millennials who want to impress their parents with their record collections. Welcome to the Rhino Cast Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Get ready for new releases, deep tracks, and conversations with your favorite artists and bands. And balloons for the kiddies. And now, your hosts with the most, Rich Mahan and Dennis the Menace. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, we have the third of our three conversations with David Nathan, noted British soul music expert covering Aretha Franklin's Atlantic hits and covers. Hey, Dennis. You know what I was doing just now? What were you doing? I was perusing the digital pages of Rhino.com. Well, there's a lot to peruse there. Indeed, but you know why you want to peruse them now? Because if you don't, you're missing updated music news, regular features like the album of the day, this day in music history, plus exclusive merch and music bundles you can't get anywhere else. I know it sounds like a late night commercial, but I'm being serious here that this is updated daily, and it's, it's why we know as much as we do. Besides all the great daily content, there are cool giveaways you can enter. For instance, right now, Rhino is running the Classic Rock Vinyl Pack giveaway, and there are five killer Classic Rock albums you can enter for a chance to win, including Led Zeppelin IV, Eagles Hotel California, Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, The Doors' eponymous debut, and David Bowie Heroes. It's all at rhino.com. You know, good things come in threes, and when it comes to today's artist on the Rhino podcast, it does not get any better. Well, you know, we've got Aretha Franklin. She's the queen of soul. It is the year of Aretha, and this is the third of three podcasts we have with the British ambassador of soul himself, David Nathan, who is not only an expert in soul music in general, but spent a lot of personal time with Aretha, and he really does have the inside scoop on so many of these songs that we're going to cover today. We spent an entire day with David, and this podcast, it probably is my favorite of all because it's covers and hits. Yeah, there's a lot of great music in this podcast. We have a ton of great music clips, and David kind of pulls back the curtain and gives us a little tidbit of info about each of them, how they came around and how Aretha found out about them or something they did when they recorded it. Really cool stuff. Well, I think that we need to get right to it. Our conversation with David Nathan about Aretha Franklin covers and hits here on the Rhino Podcast. I want to be free to Well, David Nathan, welcome back to the Rhino Podcast. I guess we didn't scare you away the first time. 
You didn't. On this Rhino podcast, we're going to kind of split it in two, and they're, sure. they kind of overlap because we're going to talk about the covers yes. that Aretha Franklin did, and we're going to talk about some of the hits. In a general sense, mm-hmm. what did Aretha look for in a song to cover? Well, she had to be able to find something in it that she could relate to or that she could bring something to. She defied genres by bringing these songs into her world. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know what, I think it's kind of, they were in her world by virtue of one thing, one thing that people may not know. She wasn't just like a performer. She listened to music. She she really, and she was, you know, we've got to think about the time period again. She was 26 years old and she listened to the radio and she, you know, she went to some shows and she famously tells the story about how she was at certain events with Barry Gordon. She said, you know, Barry, you should, be, you should give me a check for all the records, all the Motown records was I bought in Detroit. I helped build Motown as 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 a fan, as a someone who bought the records. She listened to music. It wasn't just I'm going to listen to R&B. I'm just going to listen to music. And and some of her choices were kind of like from the outside appear like a little quirky. From Spanish Harlem to Stevie Wonder's "Until You Come Back to Me," that's what I'm going to do. Some of those became the definitive version for a certain generation that might not have heard the songs otherwise. And they're probably played on the radio slash streamed more than the original. So what I think would Mm -hmm. be a great filter is to talk about the arrangements and, of course, her voice and a great place to start. And this is really kind of complicated. I'll I'll say the words back, Rack David. I say a little prayer. I'm going to let you say a little (laughs) prayer. But, I mean, the fact that Dionne Warwick had a hit with it almost, I mean, it was analogous. And yet the lightness of Dion's, the peppiness of Dion's, mm-hmm. and the, I'll use the word, forgive me, soulfulness of Aretha's. Oops. Okay. <laughs> but what I mean I by know that mean. is the choir, the, again, back to the arrangement. Yes. And it really came down to the difference between those two, two killer singers, mm-hmm. was the arrangement. From what I could tell from, from Aretha's appreciation of music, she really did really, really like those recordings, the Dion's and, uh, and the Backrack and David songs. She did. And how that came about, I Say a Little Prayer came about, Sissy Houston and the Sweet Inspirations and Aretha were rehearsing. They were just kind of fooling around, preparing to do some recording. Aretha just started doodling on the piano, I say a little prayer. And then they created this whole call and response. It was literally created. Call and response. It's like right there in the moment, right? Originally, how David wrote the lyrics in relationship to soldiers in Vietnam. That's actually the exact history of the song. The song is actually about the female singer singing. The You'll female stay in singer my heart. About, and, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. the moment I wake up. You know, it's the whole thing. I say a little prayer for you because you're over there thousands of miles away serving in Vietnam as a soldier. That, this is, is that, why the Rhino podcast lives, by the way, yeah. stories like that. Yeah. That was the whole thing. It was another song that recorded at the same time called The Windows of the World by Dion, uh, which Aretha didn't record. That was but, a flip. Yeah, yeah that was a exactly. Flip exactly. Yep. But the point being, when Aretha did it, she wasn't singing it from the perspective of the origination of what the song was about.
did Aretha find intriguing about British pop music of the era that made her want to cover the songs? You know, I don't think it was specifically just British pop music. It was just pop music. And it happened to be, as we know, historically at that time, there was what people here would have called the British Invasion. <laughs> Mm-hmm. We didn't call it a British invasion because I was in England. So we didn't, you know, <laughs> we, but, but the point being, that's how it was thought of. I don't think it was like, oh, I'm just going to record songs by British groups. Right. But it was more just what was on the radio or what people presented to her that she liked, songs she liked. So I don't know that it was particularly that that was a theme. However, having said that, as we see in her first uh, three or four five Atlantic albums, you know, she does bring something to songs that originated in Britain by the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and Dusty Springfield and then Lulu. Yeah, yeah, Elton John and then Lulu. I mean, uh, some of that, to be fair, we have to say is a function of uh, later on was more Jerry Wexler. And Jerry Wexler famously says that one of his biggest mistakes from his perspective, was having Aretha record songs for which her R&B solid black audience had no reference for. Example being Elton John's Holy Moses, the Border Border Song, song, which he says, they released as a single, it just kind of flopped because, because her core audience didn't know what it was about. I mean, there are a lot of people who were not Aretha Franklin fans who didn't know what it was about either. There was this whole thing where she did the wait by the band and 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 uh, Eleanor Rigby. They're all part of the same kind of time period. Yes. Um, but some of those are directly from Jerry Wexler. The earlier ones, though, like Satisfaction. Satisfaction. I think that's just Aretha liked the song and she did it. Do you think there was any parallel with Otis Redding doing that song as well, and maybe that kind of made it catch her ear? Possibly. I mean, uh, you know, the interesting thing about uh, about Aretha and Otis is, of course, um, that they are, they were contemporaries. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, Otis Redding credits Aretha's uh, version of "Try a Little Tenderness" as being his inspiration for doing his version of "Try a Little Tenderness." How funny. Yeah. And so there was kind of this—I don't want to say love affair, but a, a musical kind of appreciation of each other. Oh, she may be weary. Them young girls, they do get weary. Wearing that same old shaggy dress, yeah, yeah. But when she gets weary, trying a little tenderness. Benny King's Spanish Harlem, Dr. John on keyboards, but that opening, back to arrangements, da 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 Da, 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 boom, right? 
Truth be told, 1970, I was introduced to that song by Aretha.、Mm-hmm. I went backwards、mm-hmm. to discover the Benny King、mm-hmm. version of、mm-hmm. it. And I think so many of us of a generation,、yes. and to this day, it became the definitive version of that song.、Mm. But do you have any sense? Do you ever talk to her about the arrangement? Because that is a radical departure、mm. in terms of the song, it transforms the song. I didn't, to be honest with you. But I think that was also part of, again, as we've referenced before, that's part of Aretha's gift to take something that's done in a particular way and turn it into something completely like it's almost like a different song. And what's interesting about it is, of course, she slightly changes the words because、yes. she says in black in Spanish, Harlem. Also, she has an affinity for, of course, you know, a couple of the, those Atlantic recordings by Benny King. You know, her version of Don't Play That Song is like, wow. I mean, really. That's got a gospel groove to it, too. And, and, and you know what? One of my fondest personal memories is actually seeing Aretha at Top of the Pops in London do that. I mean, literally be right there in the studio,、wow. piano. I mean, some of it's, to, I don't know, I think they were using the track, but she actually was playing piano, like live in the, in the studio to the track. And it's just phenomenal. What she does with Don't Play That Song actually is one of her biggest British hits. Hey, miss, don't play no more. Don't play no more. I can't stand it. Don't play no more. No more. No more. No more. No more. Until you come back to me, that's what I'm going to do.、Mm-hmm. That is, you know, a Stevie Wonder composition. But again, Aretha's version is the definitive version. How that song got to Aretha was not as people think through Stevie Wonder. I mean, there's kind of mythology that Aretha said, Oh, Stevie, do you have any songs? But actually, somebody told me within the last 48 hours there was actually a, a Stevie Wonder recording of it. And she heard it. I mean, it was obviously, I'm sure there was some conversation between Aretha and Stevie, but the point being that I don't know if it had ever been released by Stevie. As far as I know, it hadn't. There's a recording, but it never came out. So it was an unreleased Stevie Wonder track. And in fact, I found an outtake where Jerry Wexler is explaining to Aretha. She speaks to her and says, You know, it's got to have a little bit of a kind of reggae on the piano, like the whole piano thing. And if you listen to just the piano, you can hear what he's talking about. She says, Okay. And then she kind of. Does a little thing on the piano, say that's it. And so that, it's not really anything much like the Stevie Wonder version or demo or whatever it was. I want to tell you, baby.
that's kind of the story of Aretha with covers, isn't it? Yeah. They never sound anything like the original. Mm-hmm. They've, it's so uniquely Aretha. Do you all know about the, the, the couple of the Beatles songs that Aretha, well, one in particular, Let It Be? Do you know that Let It Be was actually written with Aretha in mind? And what happened was Paul McCartney gave the demo of Let It Be to Jerry Wexler specifically for Aretha. And Aretha heard it, and she said she couldn't record it. It had this kind of religious, you know, Mother Mary comes, and she, and she, she wouldn't do it. So they kind of sat there for like a year. So she didn't record it. Then, of course, they, I guess, got tired of waiting for her to do it. Subsequently, Aretha's recording of it came after the Beatles. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom. Let it be And in my hour of darkness She's standing right in front of me Speaking words of wisdom Let it be Let it be Let it be Let it be what changed Aretha's mind about recording the song? Well, I don't know, but I know this happened. The same thing happened with Son of a Preacher Man, the same thing. It was written with Aretha in mind, and she said, no, I can't do that because it's too close to my you know, roots and my, you know, my, probably something more to do with her actual history, personal history. So she wouldn't do it, and then Dusty Springfield does it, and then she's like, all right, well, I'll do it now. I never asked that question. I always wondered why she went back and said, all right, probably because she thought, well, all right, well, okay. I said no the first time, now I've put my stamp on it. And if you listen to Aretha's version, particularly, not so much Let It Be, but Son of a Preacher Man, there's a break where she's, everything stops and she's just singing with the piano in the middle of the song. Mm -hmm. And you know, Dusty Springfield didn't do that. In 1970, massive number one hit, their biggest hit for Simon and Garfunkel, Bridge Over Troubled Water. And then a year later, number six on the charts, mm-hmm. Aretha's version. And again, the Simon and Garfunkel version has, has been, of course, talked about meaning many things. But the Aretha version, again, brings it back into her her place, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I think, and we have to check this historically, that how that came about was that she sang it. I know she sang it at the Grammys uh, of the year that Simon and Garfunkel won the Grammy for the song. And as you know, a, a lot of times on Grammy Awards, even going back then, they would have other people yes. sometimes do performances of someone's song. She actually recorded it after she had done it at the Grammys. In other words, it was so like... Really? Yes. So the first time people heard it was on the Grammys. That arrangement kind of also references the four tops, still waters run deep, you know, that whole, yeah, which is, I mean, that's a phenomenal recording.
I think we have to touch on Sam Cooke mm-hmm. and Aretha because they both come from a gospel background. Did Aretha hold a special affinity for Sam and his music? You're laughing. What is it? Look, she's told people in, in public. It's in her. It's in her autobiography. She had a mad crush on Sam Cooke. <laughs> so he really did send her. So to speak. There you go. So to speak. She'd tell people contemporaneously and subsequently, you know, she had a crush on him. Now, he was married, so probably the crush stayed as a crush, but I don't know that. But all I can tell you is that because why Sam Cooke is an important figure in Aretha's life musically is that he moved from gospel to what we call secular music, pop, R&B, before she did it. In fact, she says she does credit a conversation with Sam Cooke about that as being her choice to do that too. How Aretha knew Sam Cooke was as, originally as in being part of a group called the Soul Stirrers, gospel group. Yes. And so that's how she would have heard or seen Sam Cooke for the first time. But it was with Sam Cooke's kind of encouragement that she did that. So he played a major role in her life, you know, personally and musically. And in fact, when Reverend C.O. Franklin took Aretha to New York in 1960 to get a record deal, she had done a demo of some kind. And one of the companies that Sam Cooke suggested she signed with was RCA, which with whom he was recording at the time. But that didn't happen. In fact, the first Aretha Franklin cover of a Sam Cooke is on her first Atlantic album, A Change Is Gonna Come. Mm-hmm. Here's what ties it together. If you listen to the opening of A Change Is Gonna Come, she actually referenced, she's talking about Sam Cooke, you know, there's an old friend I once heard say something that touched my heart. It's actually like a kind of a interlude before she sings the song. There's an old friend that I once heard say something that touched my heart and it began this way. So what I thought we would do for part two, which we will call them the hits, and they can be found at the Atlantic Singles Collection. She only had two Billboard chart number ones in 1967 and 1987. Mm -hmm. That last one with George Michael, of Mm -hmm. all things. Mm -hmm. Another Brit. Another Brit. But she got a ton of radio play, and obviously her influence went way beyond the charts. I think I counted 39 top 40 hits, more R&B hits, 20 than any other artist. Mm-hmm. first woman to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So let's do a rapid-fire thing where we name a song and we have like a, a one-minute story behind okay. each of these so we can roll a lot of music. So, Rich, why don't you start with with the first one? I never loved a man the way I love you. That okay. was her first mm-hmm. on Atlantic, March 1967. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that started as a demo, as one of the demos on her 1966 demo written by a Detroit songwriter called Ronnie Shannon. She says it wasn't autobiographical. 
she spoke for, you know, at that point, I would say many, many African-American women in particular at that time, because she was voicing something that no one had voiced quite that way with using that the her whole gospel tradition. It just really, you know, it's like, wow. Once you hear that beginning of that record, you're like, for many people, like, who never heard of Rethon Columbia, like, who is this? Okay, ready to go deep? Go on. Do Right Woman, Do Right Man. Chips Mullman, producer, songwriter, guitarist at Gold Star for Phil Spector. On to Memphis. He found the movie theater that became Stax HQ, produced a ton of hits from James and Bobby Purify, Box Tops. So Dan Penn wrote that song with Chips. How did it get to Aretha? Well, it's, it's actually the second song that was begun at her first recording session for Atlantic in Muscle Shoals. So actually what happened was they were on the session. Yes. Right? And what happened was uh, um, they had a rhythm track. And then because of whatever happened, is Aretha, she didn't do the vocal there. They went home that the next morning she flew to Detroit. Uh, she and her husband, manager, Ted, had, had a disagreement. Ted White had a disagreement with somebody else. But the point being, she didn't do the vocal. There was no vocal done in Muscle Shows. The vocal was done about 10 days later in New York, in, in New York yeah. because they couldn't find Aretha for days after that. She wouldn't respond to Jerry Wexler's calls, nobody's calls, and she came in and completed the song in New York. If you want to do I think if people aren't super familiar with Aretha, they're super familiar with this song by Aretha, Respect. Yes, Respect. Well, you know, uh, I'm laughing because I remember that's the first example you can hear of Aretha completely putting a different spin on the song, giving it a whole different meaning. So different than I the mean, Otis version. Yeah. So different. You, you know the famous quote. You know, do you know that the first time that Otis Redding heard Aretha's version of Respect, he was in Jerry Wexler's office. Jerry Wexler played Otis Aretha's version, and, and Otis said, well, you know, it's not my song anymore. He had lost it to her. Exactly, something yes. like that. There's an actual quote, but the point, he might have lost it to her, but I'm sure um, given that he wrote it, <laughs> he didn't exactly do too badly with the result. And a fantastic saxophone solo by Absolutely. King Curtis. And do you know about that break, in that saxophone break? Was lifted from a break in When Something Is Wrong With My Baby. It's exactly the same thing. And wow. Jerry Wexler says that he actually suggested that. Speaking of 
Mr. Wexler. Yes. You make me feel like a natural woman, written by Carol King, Jerry Goffin. But Jerry Wexler did have some input. It was written for Aretha. He said he he asked Carol King and Jerry Goffin to come up with a song for her, and that's what they came up with. And how he got credit for the songwriting part is just, I think, by virtue of the fact that he suggested that he asked them for the song. But 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 this was one of her first forays into the Brill Building, mm-hmm. right? Yes. So that's that's very different because Brill Building songs were kind of pop songs. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I remember when it came out, it wasn't one of her most immediate hits at that time because it's quite a stretch from a natural woman to respect right yes and interestingly a natural woman was recorded in the same in those first early february 1967 recording sessions although it wasn't released until i think the end of that year it was not in the first couple of aretha albums it's on lady soul so you've alluded to that uh earlier in the conversation Mm -hmm. that they would not necessarily use everything they recorded at that time for the current album. There's because they didn't make the, Yeah, they didn't make them as albums. They just did sessions. What's amazing about that recording is the string arrangement by a guy called Ralph Burns, who also did string arrangements with James Brown. It's a gorgeous song. I mean, it's go- the arrangement, the, the string arrangement is on that particular song is phenomenal. And it was different from the other things from that recording session. And, of course, at that time, no one knew that it would become one of Aretha's most important anthems. Before the day I met you, life was so unkind, and you're the key to my peace of mind, cause you make me Chain of Fools and Seesaw, both written by Don Covey, Yeah, started with Chubby Checker. Yeah. Now, Seesaw, of course, was a hit for Don Covey before Aretha did it. Your love is like a seesaw. Your love is like a seesaw, baby. Your love is like a seesaw. Going up and down, all around like a seesaw. Chain of Fools, I've never heard a Don Covey version of Chain of Fools, even though he wrote it. So I don't actually know the exact story of it, other than that it, because he was at Atlantic and he was a label mate, I don't know how it came to Aretha, but I do know that that has now become one of her, again, anthems. If you look at it in historical context, you can see, you know, we've got Respect, I Never Loved a Man, and Chain of Fools, There, you know, particularly... I Never Loved a Man and, and Chain of Fools are about, you know, relationships different from what other women of the time would sing. I mean, we talked about Dion before, you know, and Diana Ross. I mean, while they would sing love songs, they weren't quite so direct about the kind of everydayness of, of relationships. You know, their songs were a little more light in terms of, you know, romance and, you know, you'll never get to heaven is not quite the same as Chain of Fools. Yeah,
So I was thinking about my, say, five most played Aretha singles. Okay. It's a tie for number one with the one written by Aretha and Ted White Mm. that has the most incredible banging piano intro. It could be Think. That could be Think. It could be Think. But when you listen to the lyrics of that, written by a husband and wife, was something going on at that moment in time, perhaps, David? I mean, maybe. (laughs) Because that's a pretty intense introduction from a woman to a man saying, by the way, we've got some talking to do. Well, again, and this isn't something I'm revealing like I'm the first person to have ever said this in public. It's historically documented that their relationship at that point was quite volatile. One of the reasons Aretha did not like doing interviews was because of a Time magazine cover story, which referenced the fact that she had been, and I'm using their, their terminology, roughed up in public by her husband. That stayed with her forever. Oof. She, she, how they found that out, I don't know. But you know, people talk to people, and Aretha at that point was in her ascendancy as an icon in American music. And from that point, it was really hard to get Aretha to do any interviews because it was a little too close to home. And you know, people know that that was not a good relationship. You know, she was just like anyone else. She went through different things that other people went through. She wasn't the only person who'd ever been in a relationship that didn't go well. But the point about Think is, I don't know how much Ted White had to do with the writing of the song. I just know that it, it sounds like she's talking to him directly. <laughs> That's where I was going. I, but the yeah. same thing is true. He's also got a writing credit on Dr. Feelgood. True enough. So you know, it wasn't all. It was yin and the yang, isn't it? Well, yeah. As in, <laughs> as in any relationship that I know about, there's you know the ups and downs, the ins and outs, all that. Tell us about the house that Jack built. Flipside was Say a Little Prayer. Mm. Recorded earlier in the year by singer Thelma Jones. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. And I love this because I do have a tiny short, trying to make this a very short story. Thelma Jones, in fact, uh, was from North Carolina, came up to New York in, I think, uh, 1963, 64. Thelma was a very much of a, a bluesy kind of R&B singer, mentored by uh, another blues, a very well-known blues singer of the time, Big May Bell who was also a big uh, influence on Aretha as well. Uh, Aretha recorded a couple of Big May Bell songs on her Soul 69 album. Okay. The point being, Thelma did this session with Sissy Houston and the Sweet Inspirations in the background on, on her recording, and it was on this independent label. Not much happened with it. And Sissy Houston took the Thelma Jones version, played it to Jerry Wexler, and sa- said, well, you know, this is a great song for Aretha. Because it's basically, it's got that call and response thing on Thelma's version. Mm-hmm. That's how that really came about. Many, many decades later, when Aretha was performing in Los Angeles, and Thelma Jones, someone I've known for a long time, I took her to meet Aretha backstage. I said, Thelma, one thing you do not want to do is tell her you recorded her hit first. Don't do that, because Aretha will say, no, we'll probably say something like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, but alive, but alive, 
Okay, here we go. I'm going to lead you into this one. Recorded in Miami at Criterion Sound, Donny Hathaway on organ, written by Aretha. And it probably, if you take the groove of Spanish Harlem and you apply it to this song, you'd probably be pretty rock steady. Wow. That's like groovalicious, as they but, say. But think of that next to Spanish Harlem. Yeah. They have so much in common yeah. in the groove, right? Yeah. And what she did... But she wrote that song, and I almost think that she wrote that song saying, I want my Spanish Harlem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think we can look again. I think they recorded around the same time, same sessions. They didn't come out. I th- in fact, if I'm correct, didn't one come out after the other? Like yes. one to follow yeah, up they together? Were, they were. They were bookends. Yeah. yeah. And just brilliant. I think that's – I love that. I love it. It's so – it's what it really is. funky. All right, David, tell us what you know about Daydreaming. Might it have been about somebody else in another group in Detroit? Might have been. Might have been. Do tell. Do tell. Come on. Come on, hit us. Well, look, one of the things you know about Aretha, we all know about Aretha, she was a natural woman, right? So she was a natural woman who, you know. Had needs. Well, like all human beings, she yes. had needs, and and, and 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 the thing, yes, it is a romantic song, and it is written about Dennis Edwards, and yes, neither of them denied it, and she, you know, said that that's who it was about. But yeah, uh, in fact, I remember seeing them. I was at Radio City Music Hall somewhere where you know he, she brought him on stage, and no, that's definitely about Dennis Edwards. Hey, baby, let's get away, let's go somewhere. so much fun to dig in and to hear the story behind the story from the man who actually got the story in person. David, why don't you tell us where people can find you on the web? They can find me in very many different places. <laughs> they can find me at many sites. Of many sites. <laughs> uh, specifically, they can go to my website, www.soulmusic.com, and the associated website, www.soulmusic.info, which has a lot of the archival work I've done over many years in terms of interviews. And, of course, they can try to friend me on Facebook. <laughs> because I do have like a limit. <laughs> have you reached your 5K limit, David? I'm about 30 people away from it. So Rhino Podcast listeners, order now. <laughs> <laughs> people get ready. There's a train coming. Don't need no baggage. You just get on board. All we need is faith. That last song we're coming out of there, People Get Ready. A a lot of people have done great covers of it, including Jeff Beck and Rod Stewart. But as we've discussed, is there anybody out there, an artist, 
who can do what Aretha Franklin did, and that is take a cover song and really change the arrangement, make a definitive version, and make it uniquely their own. As I was growing up, I thought that some of those covers were actually originals done by Aretha. Absolutely. I think a lot of people felt that same way. She recorded definitive versions of songs, even if there were hits prior with them that defined that song as an Aretha Franklin song. Again, thanks to David Nathan for spending so much time. We appreciate him coming in and and sharing his knowledge with us. Cheers, David. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Executive producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Pop Cult and Rich Mahan Promotions. All rights reserved.